0: Hi everyone. have you ever asked yourself why we tell stories, why we have invented philosophy and why we have come up with religions and gods? The simple answer is death. Humans have grappled with the mystery of death since the dawn of time. Humans in different parts of the world have tried to understand death. For some, it's the end of life. For others, however, it's the beginning of another life. Today we have millions of self-help books for how to live, but none for the dead. But today I'll tell you everything about two books humans have written specifically as guidebooks for the dead. One written 4000 years ago in ancient Egypt and another 1200 years ago in Tibet, China. The Tibetan book of the dead and the Egyptian book of the dead are guidebooks helping your passage to the afterlife. While these two books were written in different corners of the world, they have a lot in common, but also differences. So today I'll summarize both books and discuss these similarities and differences. And finally, what philosophical and psychological lessons we can learn from them. Written around 1550 BCE to 50 BCE, the Egyptian Book of the Dead is a guidebook to help the dead's journey through the afterlife by giving a number of magic spells. In Egypt, death was the beginning of a journey through the underworld called Duat to get to the other side of life. You would either get to salvation or annihilation. The goal of every Egyptian was to survive this treacherous journey so the Book of the Dead was left inside the coffin of the dead to help them navigate their way towards salvation where they would continue life with their loved ones and more specifically for the kings to join gods. I should also point out that the book was originally the privilege of kings but later became more widely available to others including elites, priests and even general public. So the text was somewhat different for different people. Therefore, to call it a book might give people the impression of a uniform or a standardized text. But it was more like a collection of spells which were different for different people, also depending on the period. It contained spells and texts which varied from person to person. There was no printing press, so people had to commission someone to prepare one for themselves. Therefore, they could customize it. Or if there was a pre-written one, it varied from scribe to scribe. But it also changed through the centuries. Some were more elaborate and some were simple. But they all contain spells to help you through the journey in the afterlife. One of the most famous ones surviving to today is the papyrus of Annie, belonging to a scribe called Annie, which was discovered in 1888 and now sits in the British Museum in London, UK. I should clarify one thing. The Egyptians believed in life. Life was so precious for them that they believed in life after death. For the ancient Egyptians, death was a journey to another life. Just like crossing a dangerous river or a jungle to get to the other side where you were safe again, that's why they mummified their kings so they could live forever. Well to some extent their wish came true because thousands of years later we still have Egyptian mummies intact. In other words, they may not be alive but we can see them and know them, unlike millions and billions of humans who have dissolved into earth. So the ancient Egyptians believed in life and death was just a little setback or test and the book of the dead was a way to make sure the dead could get through the trial and come alive on the other side where they could live forever. The book of the dead is made up of 192 magic spells. Today self-help books have rules or secrets or lessons. Magic spells in ancient Egypt were considered solutions to real problems. In real life you need scientific solutions, but in the realm of death, magic was as good as anything to let you come out on the other side intact. Ancient Egyptians religious belief was highly based on magical thoughts and spells. So you couldn't really separate religion from magic. Knowledge of something or knowing the name of something gives you the power over that thing. If you knew the name of a god, you had access to that god, so to speak. It's like knowing a secret about someone, you suddenly have the power to control that person if you are inclined to. You could even blackmail that person. So knowledge was truly powerful. In the same way you couldn't separate words from action, they were one and the same thing. Or two signs of the same coin. Harry Potter says a word and something happens. Leaders utter a word, the world changes forever. Each spell has a particular purpose like allowing the dead to know and navigate the afterlife correctly, help them understand gods, understand what happens to them, how to get past obstacles, fight demons and finally how to deal with God's judgment trials at the end of their journey. To understand it, think of a dangerous journey in the wilderness and you need a guidebook telling you what to do in each step of the way and how to keep yourself alive and arrive on the other side of death. In ancient Egypt, dead person faced three important challenges in their terrifying journey after death. Death was the ultimate ordeal or test a person faced, so your job was to enter salvation or resurrection and avoid annihilation or mortality. The book allowed a guarantee for immortality, and new jewels and treasures allowed an easier passage through death. And the first and immediate phase after death was how to preserve the body, so mummification was used to keep the deceased intact. One of the first rituals or spells is to awaken after death by opening their mouth to make sure they eat so they survive, eyes to see and ears to hear. For the ancient Egyptians, the heart was the most important organ in the body responsible for the person's intelligence as well as memory and the rational faculty, which allowed the dead to remember things, specifically their name was written in spell 25. Today, the brain is the rational organ while the heart is the irrational or emotional. So for the dead body, the heart had to be preserved. If something happened to it, the journey of the afterlife would become far more difficult without intelligence and memory. The second challenge the dead faced was the journey in the afterlife through the series of gates, caves, mountains, all guarded by supernatural creatures. There were blood-sucking demons, snake-eating monsters, wild animals such as snakes, a giant beetle and other obstacles trying to derail your journey to survive. But at the same time you also had helper gods, for example Anubis, a dog-like protector god to help you get to the other side of the treacherous underworld the realm of Osiris, the god of fertility. The book can help navigate it all. The dead had to use spells to fight or even dodge these obstacles, but also use them when they met various gods, as well as living in the fields of reeds, a kind of paradise where food, water were plentiful, which is perhaps an allegory to the banks of the river Nile. Since to live comfortably, one had to work, so the dead were also given little statues of servants who would work the field for the dead. So the journey in the afterlife was pretty similar to this life in many ways. The third and final challenge for the dead is the final interview or judgement before gods, specifically Osiris and Maat. This is called the negative confession, a little similar to the Christian confession or the final judgement. In this stage, the dead confesses that he hasn't committed any sins or broken any of the 42 commandments, which later became 10 in the bible. So it is was a lot tougher to be ancient Egyptians than a Christian. Because for Christians, there are only 10, but for the Egyptians, there were 42 commandments. Life has gotten easier as human civilization has flourished more and more. The most climactic moment in the book is the weighing of the heart. The dead person presents his heart to be weighed against a feather. This tells the god if the man has been a good boy or a naughty boy. If it is heavier or lighter, there is a huge terrifying monster called Amit who would devour the dead. If the heart is perfectly balanced against the feather, the dead survives and he can be reunited with gods and his loved ones. And he can live forever in the afterlife. So the moral of the story is that you got to be a good person in this life to have an afterlife. While the book has no clear structure, scholars have tried to put a structure to it. It appears to loosely follow a four-part structure. The first few chapters deal with the dead entering their tomb on their journey to the underworld and regaining their speech and motoring skills. In other words, the ability to talk and walk. Just like a baby spends about a year to learn to walk and then another year to talk. In the next few chapters, the dead rise up to learn all about the various gods. Or kids go to school to learn about the world and science and society and how everything works. In the third part, the dead travels on their journey following the movement of the sun and finally appearing before Osiris, the god of fertility. And the final section the book contains spells on how to protect yourself, find food and navigate the various places. Now I'll summarize the Tibetan Book of the Dead before I compare the two. I first came across the Tibetan Book of the Dead when I read an Iranian novel, The Blind Owl by Sadiq Hidayat. So I was very intrigued. The bardo todol or the liberation through hearing during the intermediate state translated into English as the Tibetan book of the dead is a guidebook for travelling through life after death for the dead person's consciousness as they traverse the bardo phase or the intermediate state between death and next rebirth. Bardo is the intermediate phase between death and rebirth, a very precarious phase in someone's life. In Buddhism, reincarnation is a series of births and rebirths, so death is not the end of life but just another phase of reincarnation. The book describes death and funeral rituals. The main purpose of the book is to liberate the person from the cycle of death and rebirth, which every living being is subject to. Therefore, the book is called Liberation through Hearing and the Bardo State. The book is also about visualization of afterlife experiences. The book was composed by Padma Sambhava, an 8th century Buddhist master who is said to have defeated everything in life and wanted to defeat death as well. So he composed this book but it was actually written down by one of his students. Since it was considered too dangerous by some other Buddhist monks, it was buried among some rocks for almost 600 years and rediscovered in 1350. In 1919, an American mythologist Walter Evans Wentz visited Tibet and discovered the text and in 1927 he published an English translation of the book, which became a bestseller. The book is deeply psychological and has had profound influence on psychologists, artists, musicians, novelists, including Philip K. Dick, George Saunders. It had also a huge influence on the Swiss psychologist Carl Jung's theory of the collective unconscious and karmic as well as dharmic phenomena. In Buddhism, dharma is the state of being including reincarnation and suffering and karma is a chain of actions and deeds which influence it. Your goal is to be liberated from this cycle of death and rebirth. So the book is basically a guidebook helping you escape this cycle of suffering. When you die, you enter a border state or intermediate state between death and rebirth. And it's a chance for you to escape the cycle and liberate yourself into the ultimate state of nirvana or bliss. This book tells you everything about the afterlife bardo state, all the things you will face so you are prepared. In Buddhism, consciousness doesn't die with the death of your body. It continues on after death, either in nirvana or in another body through rebirth and so on and so on. Today, when someone dies in Tibet, a monk reads from this book to help the dead spirit go through a terrifying journey. In Tibet, while the body is given sky burial, basically put on a hill or mountain for the birds to eat, the soul however continues to wander through the body state for 49 days. During this period, the dead need encouragement and guidance from their family members through the confusion and seductions of blinding light that hits the dead so they keep their consciousness going so they can make it safely on the other side. It's like a parent telling their kids that they are doing a good job or keep their spirits up or continue their consciousness when they face ill health or challenges in life. The book is also a reminder for people to live a good life so they can have a better life after death. The Bardo state is somewhat akin to a near-death experience people face during an accident or a psychedelic experience taking LSD or other drugs. As a result, the Tibetan Book of the Dead is often used by people to describe their LSD experience. And there have been best-selling books written about it, with Timothy Leary's 1964 book The Psychedelic Experience, a manual based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead being one of the most famous. In fact, the title literally means liberation or enlightenment through hearing. As the dead are experiencing the bottle state, someone is telling his consciousness to keep on going, keep on focusing, keep on existing, while they are traversing the treacherous journey. Some people have even suggested a similarity with the first law of thermodynamics as conservation of energy is similar to the Tibetan book of the dead, in which the conservation of consciousness remains the most important purpose of the book. The book deals with the main Buddhist principle of dharma which means existence or being including death and rebirth. Another important Buddhist principle is karma which means actions or deeds. The book also gives instructions on how to read signs of death, rebirth and bardo state. It is also a travel manual through an unknown territory and allows you to safely navigate your way through the bardo state. A deceased person goes through three bardo states which are akin to three gruelling tests whether they can escape the cycle of death and rebirth or not. How it works is that you have the chance to liberate yourself with each test. If you pass the first, you do not need to go through the other stages. But if you fail, you go to the next hurdle until the last one. It's like baseball, three strikes, you're out. The first Bardo state is the moment of death when the deceased experiences an intense white light. In this state, the chanting of the book can help them accept their reality immediately after death, therefore escape the cycle of death and rebirth. If the deceased fails to accept the light, the deceased moves to the second stage of Bardo. The shock of death or the terrifying white light is not easy to accept. So most deceased fail to liberate themselves as they are too confused and terrified. The second bottle lasts 14 days when the deceased experiences reality through intense visions and forces by meeting the seven peaceful and seven wrathful deities. You are meant to stay focused. In fact, the monks chanting the text help you keep your focus in this confusing state, but also comforts you as a parent would do to a child and finally gives you peace in this difficult time when the consciousness gets separated from the body upon death. In Western religion, it's the soul leaving the body, but in Buddhism, it's consciousness. In the first week, each day, a peaceful god tries to distract or seduce the dead with soft light. If they stay focused and pass, they enter nirvana. If not, they move to the next day and so forth. The more tests you go through, the lower is your chance of liberation, but also increases your chance of being reborn as an animal. In the second week, they crank it up a notch as these peaceful deities disguise themselves as wrathful gods. Your job is to keep your focus and not lose your shirt. You know what I mean. If you lose your shirt and pedal back or escape, you are sent to a lower and lower state of being. In other words, you will be reborn as uglier and uglier animals, so to speak. But if you keep your cool, you achieve liberation. But if you fail, there is a third or final bardo or stage. In the third bardo, the consciousness of the deceased meets Yama, the god of death or the enlightened protector of god of buddhism who decides whether the deceased is good or bad with his special mirror as well as white and black pebbles. White pebbles means good and black pebbles means bad. What's interesting here is that these are the imaginations of the deceased as a kind of hallucinatory images. If they realise this, they achieve liberation. But if they fail to recognise this fact and get terrified, they get reborn into another living being which keeps them in the cycle of death and rebirth. And this means that the book didn't help the deceased to escape the cycle. At this stage, the consciousness also meets his parents at the moment they have sex to conceive him or her in a different body. Animal goes with an insatiable desire for food but with a tiny mouth, so the best outcome which is to be reborn as human in a good family. So your job is to mediate that this happens. Once sex happens, the sperm meets the egg and the journey ends by going through a tunnel and you could see a woman's womb and plop and you are born again which means you fail to liberate yourself. After the rebirth or normal life, consciousness has three states. The conscious or awake state like the daytime when you go about your lives as normal, the meditative or trance-like state when you meditate, don't do yoga or sit still, and finally dream or sleep state. Just like the Barthes did, in real life consciousness has three states. Simply put, wakefulness, meditation and sleep. Now look at their similarities. Both books are there to prepare the dead for their journey in the immediate afterlife. While the afterlife somewhat differs between the two cultures, the end result is to give you the best chance to get to heaven. For the Egyptians, the book helps you navigate your way to the afterlife where you will be reunited with your loved ones. For the Tibetans, the book describes the journey and those left behind can chant to keep you stay focused and stay conscious so you don't make the wrong decisions. For both cultures, afterlife or reincarnation is a new beginning and you need the best start you can have. It's like parents sending their kids to school and packing their bags and telling them things that they have to watch. Another important similarity is that death is a perilous journey full of temptations, dangers and tests. The books are there to warn you as well as give you solutions on the spot to navigate those hurdles. The Egyptian book is more about spells that help you fight challenges, while the Tibetan is more psychological, keeping your morale high and consciousness alert at all times. In the Egyptian book, the heart must be kept safe so no attraction can steal it from you. Why? Because the heart is a source of courage. If you have courage, you can do anything. Without courage, fear will destroy you. For the Tibetans, the white light and disguised gods try to steal your attention, so it is imperative you keep your focus. And finally, both books help you get salvation. Afterlife is somewhat mirror of this life. When you are born, you are completely helpless, you need your parents to look after you. After death, you are pretty much going through a similar trial so the guidebooks can help you navigate it. In Evolutionary Biology, the guidebook for life is written in our genes and DNA. As we grow, the information is unfolded to our body to grow certain ways. In these two books, we humans take the charge of death and try to navigate it as we navigate life. Now let me talk about the differences. One of the key differences between the two books is what happens to the physical body of the deceased. In Egyptian culture, the body had to be preserved because your soul needed a body. As a result, they developed a very sophisticated mummification technique that preserved bodies for centuries and millennia. The Egyptians also lavished the coffin with all manners of useful items like tools, precious metals, as the disease needed them in the afterlife. In Tibet, on the other hand, the body was discarded after death and you would have a clean start in your next reincarnation or salvation. In fact, after the funeral, they would throw the deceased body high up on a hill which is called sky burial, so birds of prey could feast on it. For the Buddhists, when one dies, the soul leaves the body so it has no significant value except to feed other living creatures. In fact, the Egyptians prepared the Book of the Dead so they could put it in the coffin of the deceased, thinking he or she might need it during their journey. In Tibet, however, the book was only for the living to read and chant to encourage and help the deceased soul. Also Buddhists, unlike the Egyptians, didn't pay attention to worldly possessions. In fact, the central doctrine of Buddhism is detachment from all worldly possessions and pleasures. The ancient Egyptians, however, buried the dead with all the good things of this world like gold, silver, ivory and all manners of luxurious items and tools. Which brings me to the second major difference. The Egyptian Book of the Dead was only available for those with power and money because it wasn't cheap to make it. It would take a skilled scribe weeks and months to write and illustrate one, so only a handful of people could afford it. In fact, for centuries it was only for the kings and later it became available for people with money. The Tibetan Book of the Dead was a little more accessible to any family had access to books and monks to chant a book in the funeral and subsequent days. In fact, anyone was able to chant a text for the deceased. You could read it before death so you are prepared. For the Tibetans, death was not a complete break from those alive. And that's why it was the living who would read the book aloud to help the deceased. In other words, the dead soul was nearby the living and could hear your voice. For the Egyptians, once someone died, they had to put everything in the coffin and hope for the best. But for the Tibetans, the living had a major role to play in the deceased's precarious journey by encouraging their consciousness through chanting the words from the book. Which brings me to the third major difference. The Egyptian book is very physical and body focused. It's a physical item put inside the coffin. This is like a practical parent who prepares a backpack for their child on their journey, giving practical items he might need. This is very western and pragmatic. The Tibetan book is very much consciousness focused and more psychological so instead of giving the deceased physical tools, It equips them with psychological skills to stay focused so they don't walk astray. In other words, the Tibetan parents teach their children discipline to remain focused at all times. Not only that, the parents transmit encouraging words from a distance. As a result, the Tibetan book has been studied by psychologists and philosophers as well as those taking psychedelics. Despite the differences, these two books are the most important relics of the human mind on the idea of death. Both books are quite optimistic and practical in their approach towards death. So instead of fearing death, these two books offer solutions in how to understand and successfully navigate their perilous journey. You might think they are morbid but that's not true. Both books take a very chilled matter-of-fact approach towards death. Since we all die, we might as well accept death as a natural part of life. Not just accept but also prepare for it. In psychology, cognitive therapy means understanding a problem rationally and then acting accordingly. It forces us to face reality and once we fully understand that reality, we are in a better position to know what to do and what to prioritize in life. We do not need to bicker about little things. We can focus on bigger things in life. A smart person understands life and a wise person understands death. If there is one thing these two books can teach us, it is this. We humans are good at telling stories. These two books are stories we have invented about what happens after you die. In other words, we humans see everything in terms of stories. I don't know who but someone said that the human mind is wired in narrative form. We think narratively. The way we see life is a story. Someone is born, they live and then die. It's the same about death. are steps or stages. What's interesting in both books, the afterlife is in three stages. No wonder the Greek philosopher Aristotle saw a three-stage pattern in all Greek tragedies. Act 1, we are introduced to the premise of the story or beginning or a mystery. Act 2, we go through the journey to solve the mystery or achieve our goal. And Act 3, when everything is resolved. So in both books the element of storytelling are very strong and that says it all stories are all written in our DNA we learn through stories we get entertainment through stories we bond with others through stories nothing can penetrate a human heart more easily than a good story and these two books continue the human story after we die so death is not the end of the story thank you for watching